Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Listen, I know that I have a reputation of creating every introduction to this show into some kind of raging thirst trap, but all I want to talk about right now is how much I want singlet weather and to eat a mint choc chip ice cream. Maria Lewis, <laughs> welcome back. to My favourite flavour. Oh my God. It came from the deep. Chapter 10, bonus episode. We're in SeaWorld. It's singlet weather, mint mm. choc chips. Bring it on. That's, I mean, mm. there's so many other things to cover, but you just took me off and it's like, shit, I would really like a mint choc chip ice cream right now. And I, mm. I don't have one and I want one. I love right a mint choc chip ice cream. And it's oh. specific to like, if I'm buying a tub of ice cream, I'm not buying mint choc chip, right? Because yeah. you have more of a diversity of flavors and combinations in a tub. As you know, we've lived mm. together. We know how this works. We know the flavors we're going for. It is not like 82 different types of whole chocolate bars that can be found in the ice cream. We don't want it. But if you're at a ice cream saloon type scenario mm. where you can choose like hokey pokey and there's all the different flavors, it's mint choc chip every time, baby. Mint choc chip all the way. Like the Gold Coast SeaWorld is such its own thing. Like it is the, it is, there is a different vibe about it. It kind of feels like a local, especially in past years, has felt like this local enterprise, but it is a worldwide franchise of this very local enterprise. So it's really cool to finally be here in the inner workings of it to feel what it's like at this kind of like strange, weird thing of like, it's like when like a weird mom and pop video store turned into a blockbuster back in the day, but they still kept that like mom and pop energy about the place. That's kind of what Gold Coast SeaWorld is. So it was really interesting to like, this is like, you know, for someone who's been there and now someone who's taken their kids there, it's like, this is, you know, a a place and a space that like makes up such a big chunk of this chapter. And I I thought it was important to like get in like to the feel of this place. Cause I think it's like, it's not this ominous thing. It's not blackfish. And even the book kind of like contends with some of that reputational stuff, but you know, what, what made you sort of, um, what made you want to go apart from the necessity, I suppose, but what made you kind of like really paint the picture of SeaWorld as something different in this time? Well, necessity was key, to be honest, because you need a vessel to be able to talk about the specifics of not just Amos's biology, which we've talked about a lot in the previous bonus episodes, but also where he fits and how he fits into the natural like marine ecosystem. And to be able to do that, that's not something dry and boring from a storytelling perspective, like a university. I'm not saying those are dry and boring places. I find them interesting as fuck. But if you're writing a book chapter, something that's taking place in that setting is less interesting than if you're going to not just SeaWorld, but Gold Coast SeaWorld. Because you make a great point. Like uh, for people who aren't familiar with the SeaWorld on the Gold Coast, it is extremely different from American SeaWorlds. Like it's not 
there's, I think maybe 30% of it is theme park and 70% of it is designed for research and conservation. Like I, as I mentioned, you know, I used to be a reporter and so I used to cover stories all the time where um, once it would hit humpback migration season where every, you know, third or fourth day there was a whale caught in the nets or some big marine creature caught in the nets. And it was always SeaWorld who would be going out to those scenes and trying to release the animal in the least stressful fashion or like, if an animal was injured, they were the ones who were rehabilitating it to release it back into the wild. So it's a different scenario to a blackfish per se. And, you know, like we mentioned it on. And I want to just touch on one bit. The seaweed on the Gold Coast, the animals aren't the centerpiece as such. Well, yeah, that's what I meant by it being 30% theme park is that like, there are rides. There are like mechanical rides. Splash there pads, really pools. No, there's not like yeah. a, there's not like dance, dolphin dance stuff. There's not a lot of that. It's like here's a jet ski. You like there's it's- definitely <laughs> some stuff like that. Like I don't want to sound like we're drinking the SeaWorld Kool Aid. They have a daily dolphin show and shit. I want to. Can we double back quickly from SeaWorld because I want to do one thing. We start this episode with Amos and Kyra in the water together and opening up and unlocking this great this you know this conundrum there's been riddles to be solved we've been introduced to travis tishop i want to get to it one of the greatest names you've ever written ever in a book and a tt and and then also we get introduced to storm's gnarly toes hanging off the edge of a lake which i was just like i looked down at my own feet when i was listening and reading to it and thinking yeah that's some gnarly man toes visuals uh that i'm getting there from the underwater but um we because obviously i wasn't on the last episode yeah, can we just can we just mention how great fucking Dirty oh. Herb Extraordinary Kate Zerny was on that episode? Right. Like, in terms of people big FOMO, who can, big FOMO okay. for not being on that episode. I, I was uh, in, so great. In terms of people who could not be better placed to offer more of a unique insight into this world. I mean, <laughs> by all accounts, she probably should have written this book. Like someone who's perfectly placed between those worlds of like media and gold coastisms but also the ocean and you know understanding that marine environment like those humpback whale releases like kate would be the person i'd be on that job with you know at surf carnivals or on the surf circuit she's the one that would be there so really just like such an invaluable guest um and thanks so much to her to coming on yeah it was awesome it was a really terrific episode and um kate zoni's like uh, I mean, this is not to say she's anything like Woody Allen, but there's a movie that Woody Allen made called Zelig, which is kind of like the proto Forrest Gump, where like Forrest Gump, like you see him like interact with all these presents and stuff. And I felt like the longer you talk to Kate Zerny, the more incredible stories where she actually became the central character of and that kept happening. And I was like, I don't know if this episode's ever going to end, but if it is going to end, I'm sure like... <laughs> Kate Zerny's going to end up like basically the prime minister of Australia or something like, you know, she, well, it's like, going to, it's going to happen. I had to cut so much out. Like the runtime was literally the exact same amount of runtime for an episode that you and I would do, but there's just so many stories crammed in there that when I was editing it together, I was like, Oh shit, I can't put this in. Oh shit. I can't put this in. But the uncut version would be amazing. You know, oh, just the Owen Wilson story alone is mate, just the best. Release the Zerny cut. Now, <laughs> let's let's go to the bottom of like uh like palat slash humans um and we're finally sort of unpacking a riddle kaya's got this and she's like he's giving you these keys it only makes sense that you're there and what's really cool about the kaya that we get, get at the beginning of this chapter is she's emboldened she's been investigating we've seen some cool like you know uh, 
putting the piece of this puzzle together. But I think even more emboldened that she's going to this place where she was attacked with her brother, with her family. And like, she's jumping in the water with Amos, like, and knowing that it's like right there, her family's right there. Like, I just thought that right from the outset, I'm like, this is a Kaya that is really like feeling herself as we come into this part of the book. Yeah, I mean, she's somebody who her evolution here, I feel like is really starting to become fully formed, especially when it's not a secret to the people she cares about the most, you know, that's like, that's, that's pretty important to her. And so having that moment is really significant, but also like, (laughs) you know, just the the little mystery like this is a romantic mystery with sci-fi elements I don't know however you would categorize it right but even like the Amos movie bill Maltese Falcon Affair to Remember Mm. Casablanca Top Hat they're all romantic mysteries and it's like a very obvious wink to the plot mechanics of this story which is a romantic mystery but even just the device of like the keys and the discovery and the hunting down of the thing is like a practical, tangible, physical mystery device, as well as everything else that is happening. You know, it's about packaging up little things within the bigger, like babushka dolling it, basically. The little mm-hmm. things within the big things, within the small things. But also stuff like, you know, we're talking about um, the biology of Amos and how I've mentioned the long vertebrae thing before and that coming from one of the lead marine biologists who worked at SeaWorld who suggested that because you would need like the the physicality, the support, basically the spine support, but even stuff like the webbed fingers that was, you know, touched on earlier, but as like a thing, but then seeing why it was important for a creature like that to have opposable thumbs is key. Like it's one thing to say, oh yeah, 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 webbed fingers. And so the webs can go like obviously webbed fingers, it works like a paddle or a flipper. She can move faster through the water, but the way that it can thwick away shows like a practicality to what would be a realistic evolutionary detail. They would need opposable thumbs, especially because they're humanoid and this it gets expanded on later in later books, but selkies and mermaids and mermans and aquatic humanoid mythology, them being shape shifting in nature, them mm. having the ability to shift between different types of creatures. And obviously he doesn't know that yet because it's all like through the prism of Amos's experience and what he does and doesn't know. And his knowledge is all comes from, you know, not just Professor Waldman and even that little line he says about like language being the doorway to the universe or the world or whatever the specific wording is, but it's also informed from a human perspective. They're thinking about this from like science rather than magic. And those are both true. One doesn't cancel out the other, but we don't have a magic perspective dot, dot, dot yet. We just have the human perspective. And so everything kind of just needs to be teasing one, but informed by the other, which is like a delicate dance to do, to be honest. And also, can I just say (laughs) the, the bit where I said about the, um, the father saying that language is the gateway to the world. He says that in French and my friend Frenchie. Yes, I know. What a fucking, I can't explain Surf club nicknames to you. We've touched on this earlier, you know, beanbag and testies and all that shit. But our friend Frenchie 
<laughs> she was from France, Flora Mancier. Um, she translated that for me. And um, so she translated that exactly, but it was also like a, just a really nice way to have her little fingerprints in the book because Frenchie is one of the greatest long distance paddlers the world has ever known. She literally paddled across the ocean from Canada to France. Like I'm not even fucking joking. It was, she was a part of a team. It was like a documentary about it. She's an incredible athlete. And, um, and I met her through my Iron Woman days. She was on the circuit and she just is unrivaled in the way that she can, like there's truly nobody can do what she can do. Like in big surf, in distances, she's just unrivaled in what her abilities are. So getting her to like, a for it to be Frenchie during the translation was sick, but also just nice because she was um she's such an icon to the sport. I love how both elaborate and simplistic a Gold Coast nickname <laughs> can be. Cause like <laughs> Frenchie, why do you call her Frenchie? She's French. She's All French. Right. I didn't come up with that nickname for clarity. I, I'm I just came saying, onto the scene and the nickname was already established. I'm just saying it does what, you know, it, it does what it says on the tin. It, so. it, it says, it, you know, it is what it says. It does what it says. Does like what it, it says. couldn't be, but then you do get those nicknames like BB and you're like, oh, that's weird. Why do they call it? Oh, beam, oh like, you know what I mean? Yep. Like it's, I, it's oh. either super basic or it's like, it, there's a whole inception level plot <laughs> twist to it. There's no in between. Why don't you have some more imagination, darling? Um, no, I was just going to say one other thing is as you were saying that I was reminded of, um, uh, of I think a Marvel movie that we both like, which is Thor, which is that great scene of Chris Hemsworth in his first performance as Thor going like, you call it science and we call it magic. And I was just like, oh God, it was a lame, I it was love, a, it was a lame line, that. but like it, it, it totally no. works. I, I will fight you to the death on that. I actually think that's a brilliant line. It is. Because so much about comic book mythology, like it gets so elaborate and outlandish and especially Thor stories like from the 70s and, you know, a lot of the Jack Kirby stuff, but specifically like the the brilliance of comic bookery is when you can condense a complex idea into something that can be an elevator pitch. And so elevator pitch, for those who don't know, it's a term often used in lots of different types of storytelling, but basically, can you pitch something to me in the duration of an elevator ride? And I guess the great example, I always think about it when I'm trying to make superheroes or supervillain type characters or work within that medium is Spider-Man. He's a teenager who gets bitten by a radioactive spider, gives him spider abilities, boom. Done. Super, super simple, pseudo silent science, easy. How the fuck <laughs> do you do that elevator pitch explanation for Thor question mark, but also <laughs> that whole wider universe, which incorporates not only so much IRL Norse mythology, but so much psychedelic shit as well. And especially in the context of that point of the MCU and how they're trying to, to bridge those gaps and Kevin Feige's whole thing about never shining away from the things that make comic books cool. Like the whole X-Men series, how they put them all in black outfits. Cause they thought the people who made the movie thought, you know, yellow and blue was lame. And Kevin Feige is like, we're never going to do that. We're going to have them in those outfits. But <laughs> to do that, you have to like, you have to invite the audience in yes, through clever pieces of dialogue and through clever pieces of storytelling. And I think about that line from Thor all the 
fucking time. <laughs> I genuinely think about it I, all I'm, the time. I'm glad I jumped. I'm glad I jumped on, onto something there. Maybe it's like maybe it's that I know you and you're my best mate, and there's like osmosis or something. <laughs> um, and I don't even like that, that. To be honest, my ranking for Thor movies, controversial opinion, is like for real. <laughs> dark. Of course. Dark, of course it dark is. world. Dark world number one. Thor one, number two, and then Ragnarok number three, which is controversial. But can I just say one of the guys who worked on the story, not the screenplay, but the story for Thor is um, J. Michael Stravinsky. And for people who are like massive story nuts, they'll know he just has done a lot of comic book work over the years, bit of a legend, but is famous for working with the Wachowski siblings on not just like a lot of their stuff, like credited and uncredited, but he rolls with the sisters and works on a lot of the big philosophical uh, themes and stories in their worlds, whether it's Matrix, whether it's Sense8, stuff like that. So that line, when I heard it, like you can never, when there's so many people working on screenplays and stories and there's been 82 different writers of the comic book mythology at that point, it's really hard to pinpoint whose line is who or where that came from. But the second I heard that line, I was like, it felt like a J. Michael Stravinsky line. It felt like something that he would try and be, a, he would be able to condense a huge philosophical theme <laughs> into the down pitch. into something like that. That's Red pill, blue pill, whatever. Yeah. You know? So we have to talk about Travis Tishop. Did you mm. like, did you type that name? Cause this is what I imagine. Did you type that name and just push back from the desk and just fucking walk away? Like, that's it, guys. I did it. I did it. Did you give yourself an hour break? Because I think you deserve it. That's so nice that you say that. This is why I love you specifically and hate other people specifically. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, but there's a thing. There's a whole thing in publishing world where they don't like names that have alliteration and film world as well. But mm. specifically, they do not like the first name to have the same initials as the last name. And I didn't realize this until Who's Afraid came out and I have a character called Joss Jabor. And Jabor was a wink to my friends, Bridie, Anna, Alice, Seamus, uh, their dad, Chris, Philomena, the whole Jabor family. It was just like a little link, wink to, um, to them as I do for lots of different characters and things throughout my stories. There's always little winks to, to my mates and to people that I love and people I'm inspired by. Like obviously Joss came from, Oh, just Sweden, which, you know, <laughs> we talk it's, about what's aged just, the worst. Yeah, It's getting <laughs> increasingly more problematic by the day. Ooh, you know what? Still love, still love Buffy content. We'll never apologize, but you know, we can leave, we can leave him um, behind and move forward with, the stories but when that had come out there had been some notes during the process of the editing about not liking alliteration names and I was like fuck you like I had to change enough other shit that I wasn't going to tweak that I was like no I'm not changing that fuck it it's also a book you know what I mean like it's a little bit different if you're saying it out loud Joss Jabor it maybe is like a little bit hard as a like a spoken dialogue but people are reading it on the page. Travis Tishop is fun to say, but if you were doing a live action adaptation of this, that name would probably get changed because of the practicalities of, you know, how you say it. But it could weirdly come from, because I write chronologically mm. and I don't always have the character names. I usually have the character names of, let's say your four main characters, maybe five, your two 
two to three leads depending on the conventions of the story for instance the witch who caught a death is a story that has three leads rather than two usually this type of story people look at it from having two lead characters you have your main character and you have the romantic foil or the villain foil right in the witch who caught a death you have casper the main character you have her twin brother barristan barry also a main character and then you have carla barry and then you have Carla Tully, the witch, also main character. So it straddles three. Wailing Woman, for instance, you have two main characters in Sadie and Texas. And so you alternate between the two. Contos. Texas. Contos. Contos. Yeah, that was for all my Greeks out there. Oppa. Oppa. Alexi, that's But with, so as you're writing the book, you have those four or five character names and I keep spreadsheets of, well, not spreadsheets, word docs, because I fucking hate Excel. Um, but I keep word docs of every character name that is mentioned in one of my books. That's why we spoke earlier about Amos, the name being significant to other events and other stories, that specific name being key. So even a shopkeeper, right? You have a shopkeeper or something, or just like a random person that you pass by or a random person is in a scene and they need to have a name. I need to check. I haven't used that name before. It doesn't always work out that way, but it's like, I'm trying to do my best to make sure there's not six Susans, you know, all throughout the series or whatever, or that's not a default Caucasian name. And so I had Imogen Tishop early because that's her sister. Mm -hmm. And she's mentioned in the second chapter as somebody that is at the same training squad as Kaya and Cabby. And so she's in there early. And then I knew I needed the science character. It made sense for it to be a brother. So you already have the last name Tishep, which by the way, obviously all the shit you can change, but I was quite into the name Imogen. It's um, it's the name of one of Haley's kids. So like little wink there, but Tishep is just like, it's a satisfying name when you say it. And, <laughs> oh God, it's always like, it's the last names that fuck you truly, because you think it's so simple like you come up with a great first name but then you you need a surname and they need to sound good together and you think oh yeah there's like endless last names you get through seven and you're like I've used every last name (laughs) (laughs) there are no more surnames so that's why I keep that notes document on my phone where I hear different names or different surnames I write them down because it's I want I want you to I like want you that. to I want you to start when you're actually I mean you, you're already doing it but I want you to try and get even more obvious and creepy with like oh what how do you spell that name like hold your phone near your face the Hello. next time you spell next time you spell it but but like Tisha you is- say this I was in a cemetery two days ago <laughs> and I like walked past oh a grave while on the phone to Karis I was like oh hold up one second and I like had to jog back I was like oh that's a good name <laughs> quickly whipped out my phone, wrote down the name, which is like, uh, you know, that's famously what JK Rowling did with um, Thomas Riddle and William McGonagall, Scotland's worst poet becomes Professor McGonagall, but they're all buried in Greyfriars Bobby in Edinburgh, which is the cemetery where she used to walk her baby while she was writing the book. But so by the time we get to that character needing to be there, Travis just works. Like I worked with a lot of Travis's at the Gold Coast Bulletin, like four or five of them. Weirdly, it's just I don't. The know, highest it's so... population density of Travises in <laughs> of the whole Travis's. world. <laughs> and you don't really come.
come across them that much, do you? Like I was but even you say that, and then there's it. we've got two close buddies, like the Travis Woods and Travis Johnson, who are like true, you know, and like they just started. But they're on different sides of the world, yeah, and true. you know all this, all this different kind of stuff, and it like takes you a while to meet those people. But Travis just felt like such a Gold Coast name, and then Travis Tishep, and I could see people calling him TT, and it just or tea bag or whatever. It just kind of, <laughs> it just sort of fit. You know, there's no like grand architecture or plan or meaning like a lot of the other names um, that I choose. This was just one was like Travis Tishop. Yeah, yeah, fuck it. yeah, I think that works. Yeah, we'll probably lose it if we got to do a screenplay, but fuck it. And in, in the context of the book, it works. You know, you got to work with like one thing might not work for another medium, but you're working in one medium. So you need I, to make sure you're like super micro focused on that. I think alliterative names are good if they work. And I think there's something about Tishop as a surname, it's got that James Gum quality oh, to it. Um, one of my favorite names. Yeah, it's got truly one of my favorite pop culture names. Grateful. It's got, it's got, the, it's got that. Points. It's got that quality to it. Um, Tishop, and so Travis kind of makes sense because Travis feels like it's, uh, you know, you get people like famous people like Travis Scott. Like, so you kind of maybe have it, it, it's, it's a name that's not necessarily wedded to like a specific, uh, like country region, you know, it sort of seems like it's a little bit Western. It can kind of go across the way. And so like Travis Tishop, there's just something, I don't know about it that like completely works and like gives you a real view of who this guy is and maybe who his family is. And it kind of sounds like it's got regalness as well. Um, you know, but I don't know what it is, but it's just a great, it's just a wonderful name. I want to talk about it a lot because I just love it. So, so um, funny and interesting to me, the things that you connect with or the things that you like that sing to you because mm. they're never what I expect. <laughs> they're never, you're like, anyway, so I want to talk about this specific character from random scene number 22. And you're like, wow. Okay, cool. No, love well, look, look, they, I have to talk about the things where the, where it really breathes the life in it for me, because you do clever stuff that we've kind of covered in other episodes. And I think part of what you're starting to get into here is like your wisdom as a writer. And I wanted to sort of finish on this stuff. Um, but like, there are all these little bits. I don't know. They're like, cher- they're like the chips in the mint choc chip. They're just these delightful morsels <laughs> that attract me to what happens in the mint choc chip. And then we move on to the other stuff that like that gets it all together. But I think the food he- stuff's specific just quickly, because we do have diet ginger beer earlier mm. in the book. Like it's not just, you can't just put, Bundy baby. Bundy Bundy. baby, you need to put the brand. You need, is it diet? Like, you're not just having a Coke. Is it a diet Coke or is it a Coke zero? And that tells you something about that person. Him 100%. getting a boysenberry ice cream tells you something compared to mint chocolate chip. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I'm a bit of a boysenberry guy myself, but, um, as Love well, I, I, I can be, I can be, uh, you know, I can be tipped into a, a little boysenberry, um, Love but a bit of fruit, <laughs> a little, just a whisk of fruit. Um, so what I was going to say is, uh, wrapping up, there's a really great device, um, that sometimes feels like it's, that sometimes feels like it can be crowbarred in. And, um, in the recent season, um, I was talking to a couple of friends about the recent season of Cobra Kai, which is a great series, how they're trying to tie up the loose ends and character development. Like, how do you move through here? And one of the great things is not only correspondences, like how things flow through the story, but actual correspondence telling you something about a character that you could never have known of before. And so what's really cool is you going through Travis Tishop and Dr. Walden's 
correspondence with between one another, which is like uh, building his character and his mindset and uh, having changed since his discovery of Amos. And so particularly here, it's, there's something so deeply relatable about like, Hey, I wrote this piece. Do you like it? Cause that feels like something that you and I do all the time. Like, Hey, I wrote this piece. Hey, I recorded this podcast. Hey, I did this thing. Do you like it? Like check it out for me, but also like a really great, I think it's a great device that you kind of use very effortlessly in this part of the book of like, I'm going to give you more background without a flashback, without something else. And it becomes secondhand, but it's as reliable almost as a flashback. How do you make that choice is I guess where I want to kind of come down on the end of the episode. Does it come to like, I wanted, there's ways that I can make this character, Travis Tishit more important because of his direct relationship with Walden, or is it like a, a flashback feels too rote here? It's too boring. It's too easy. Like what, what, when you've got your arsenal, what, what are you thinking? Or is it just like instinct? Well, I wanted to keep the flashbacks specifically something that Kaya experiences and her yeah. memories and recollections all specific through Kaya. So we never go, we never jump down that path through somebody else's perspective on memories, right? So once you make that choice immediately, it rules out having to do flashbacks for other people. Mm. And the thing is, it's tricky to make a character feel alive who's dead from the first time we meet them. We never, ever meet Professor Waldman living. We've only ever seen him as a corpse and we only ever learn about him through narrative exposition and through emails and through clues that we get through, you know, the way Amos talks about things um, and the memories that he has with them. And then the email correspondences and the funeral cuttings out from the newspaper, stuff like that. Like there's a lot of things that you had, it's just like the slow layering so it's really hard to show a personal evolution of a character who's never been alive in the story as you're actively in it, which yeah. is what I was trying to do with the emails and to show, especially to like, you know, Amos has been with Professor Waldman for nearly 20 years. So say 15 years plus, if you want to get really specific, right? Um, think how much you've changed in 15 years as a person. Think how much your morals and ethics change, let alone how that changes in the perspective of your career, especially if you're looking through the lens of a very specific career like Professor Waldman has, where, you know, um, marine biology broadly is kind of his area of expertise, like the humpback whale migration patterns that ties into Amos's you know, how he will find his family and where he comes from and how he got there. But that pivot on Professor Waldman's part is informed by his growth over time, but also his personal relationship with Amos. So it was a little bit of both um, with stuff like that. Like it usually, it's never just like one thing or the other. It's usually a character, like Travis Tiship is a character who serves a lot of purpose, but I'm always trying to keep the number of characters down as well. Mm. That is a thing that my editor, uh, Anna Boatman from Little Brown, she taught me with my very first book. Um, she suggested trimming a few characters. There was like in, in Tommy's initial circle of friends, I think there was like three others, three additional ones. And they're just gone. She, that was one of her suggestions in the edits. And she never had to teach me that lesson again because it was so obvious the improvements that it made to the story and how it really 
bold underlined elements that you wanted to bold underlined without you having to do much work to do that if there were just less voices in the cacophony of dialogue and whatever and so from then onwards after learning that lesson with the first book it's always something I'm trying consciously to do is like does this character really need to be here do these three characters really need to be here or can I just get rid of two and make their function serve as one so you know you have a character like Cabby, who's her best friend throughout the, she doesn't start as a best friend. She's just like an acquaintance. But by the end of the story, she is her Kaya's best friend, but she's also somebody who um, is the sounding board in a way for Kaya's exploration of things that are not of this world. She's the one who doesn't laugh her out of the room. She's the one who doesn't look at it from a, like Caucasian perspective of mm. things are either real or they're not. She's the one who comes informed with a different cultural background and different mythological intelligence. And the character of Travis is that too. You know, he's the person she like goes on the fake date with to try and get intelligence. But like once she's in there and, you know, once she's, you know, got the intel that she needed, he can serve more purpose and, even like the, the bit where he like kisses her on the cheek. It's like, he's in there for, he's playing the long game. Travis is hoping like they mightn't work out now, but they might work out down, down yeah, like he's, down the way. Yeah. He's, he's like this, there's certain like, it's not going to go now, but I'm happy to be mates. I'm happy to be yes. mates to see where it goes um, because she's kind of worth it. But no, it's, I look, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a great point just to underscore, like obviously Kaya that's her unique thing is her memories are so critical and, and how you structure at the beginning of the thing, it would kind of cheapen that device if you did it again. But also I think what it does is it shows you how calculating and intelligent Dr. Waldman is in the way that he continues to research and guys his under handed research and the level of discovery that Amos would be in other ways, but he's still interested in the integrity of the research and hasn't, not an ego, but you know what I mean? Like has a personal. It's a once in a lifetime discovery. It's like um, Mary, Car Mary Curry, right? Mary yeah. Curry? Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking of that meme. I'll, set, <laughs> I'll tweet I'll tweet to it in the thread. You know, the one where she's like, you know, the scientist, Mary Curry. And they're like, uh, it's pronounced Mariah Carey. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a Mariah Carey. In. But it's like her discovering what she discovered and ultimately it killing her. But as if instead of publishing those discoveries and instead of her becoming um, a pivotal figure for science and exploration and, you know, all that stuff, it's like, has she kept it secret? Like, you know how hard that is for somebody who makes the discovery of a lifetime to make a choice to keep that secret. And he still benefits from Amos from like a professional point of view because his research has more depth and insights than other people's because he has a specimen that that is informed by and nobody else has that. It's like having like a secret, like it's like having a cheat code for a video game, right? And nobody else has it. But at the same time, it is this constant battle of like, what, like, what is he doing for his career yet? What is he doing for his personal life? And there is nobody else in his personal life except Amos. Amos is trapped. That's like a, that's like, there can't be anybody else in his life in that particular situation until Professor Waldman cops it. But um it's for Professor Waldman, he is a choice and he chooses to make his life 
about Amos personally and professionally. And just one other thing I'll say about Travis um, and, you know, how I was talking about it in the comparison of like Cabby being the person who has like mythological intelligence or whatever. If you were making that comparison for Storm to use a quote from The Wire, he's the get shit done piece where it's like, <laughs> fuck it. We just need a guy to like fuck some shit up. We need a you. We need someone to like, you know, get popped in the jaw, no questions asked. Like Storm's just the the bull in a china shop, I think is the analogy that um, that they use when there's the big discovery scene. But that's that's what he is. Every character has a purpose and um and they might necessarily, hopefully as a writer, you don't want that purpose to be super obvious. You don't want that purpose to be like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the, that's, this guy. Yeah. That's the pawn. That's the bishop. That's the king. That's the queen. That's the whatever. That's the knight. You want it to be a little bit more, um, you want a bit of some complexity to it, hopefully. Was there anything before we finish up um, that you wanted to cover that you want to talk about in this? Because I feel like, you know, we were navigating my crazy um, interpretations of SeaWorld and um, other than uh, the incredible uh, surf sports nut um, with kids in nippers, Sophie Chu, shout out to Sophie Chu. Um, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to cover in this uh, particular episode? No, I just, I, there, I was going back through a lot of, it came from the deep hashtags on social media, look at things that people had posted in the past and, you know, to kind of get refreshes on what elements of the story people had connected with. Cause we're getting to the money end mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. the book. We haven't got that many left. Um, we've, we've really just, or after this, it's like 11, 12, 13, and then the epilogue and it's all, you know, it's gravy baby. But there was um, this guy, uh, I want to say it. I can't, I can't remember his last name, but his first name's Jeff. Um, and I apologize, Jeff, if you're listening to this, please don't take it personally. Keep in mind, I had a stroke. My brain doesn't retain information like a normal human being, but after it came from the deep came out, he came up to me at supernova Sydney and he had this pair of shoes that he had hand painted to match the cover of it came from the deep. So awesome. with like, I Blake, it's just like, what, <laughs> you know, every time shit like this, like when we would, Kate and I were talking about the earrings and that people made um, book nerd fangirl with all the book spines for my series on them. And you're like, uh, what, what, but like, what? And the shoes were so beautiful and detailed. And so he got me to sign them and he does it. I think for lots for books that he loves, he paints custom shoes to match the artwork and the story and the themes of that. And then he gets the authors to sign them and then he puts them in a little collection, which is so special and so sweet. I remember hearing about this senator from the US who used to write to celebrities and philosophers and activists and ask them to write him a personal letter in return about something important in their life. And so he builds up this collection, this archive of personal letters from people like Rosa Parks and, you know, Barack Obama and whatever, that were all these like handwritten personal letters that end up becoming invaluable, but at the time seemed like such a little thing. And I was just like, as I was going through all those pictures and posts and looking at Jeff's beautiful artwork and stuff, it just made me feel extremely grateful that people have connected with this story the way they have, but very grateful. And this might be the new year of it all, but grateful that we get to go to, into it in such detail because we haven't got to do that with any of my other books 
like this. You know, I, it came from the deep. We'll come out the other side of this. And it came from the deep will be the most picked apart overanalyzed, <laughs> obsessed over story of mine. And out of all the books, it feels so special that it's that one because it's it's the book that, you know, I put out into the world myself after people saying that nobody wanted merman shit. And I'm so lucky that people did and people do. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermates.